Welcome to this fourth session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This session is entitled Grace versus Law. The last session we talked about the two Adams, and this evening we're going to continue that discussion and move into a contrast of law and grace. And we're going to start with one of the most foundational of all foundational truths in the gospel. Romans 5.17 For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one Who's that? Adam, right? Much more those who receive the abundance of His grace and of the gift of His righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, People who are concerned about too much grace are not reading their Bibles. God wants us to aggressively take hold of a superabundance of it. And we're going to look at a few phrases in Romans 5.17. Those who receive. That word receive is the Greek word lambano. And it means to seize, to take hold of. And it's an aggressive verb in the present active participle verb tense, which is the ing form. So you keep on keeping on receiving two things. The first one is the abundance of grace and abundance, not just a little bit, and abundance. And the Greek word there is perisaya, and it means an abundance that exceeds normal expectations. You could say a super abundance. The second thing to receive is the gift of righteousness. Gift, doria, which means it's a gift freely given without any merit, without any entitlement. It's purely because of the desire of the giver. And you know who that is. So through Jesus, we are to receive the gift of His righteousness. That means the clearance of all your guilt. So we are to actively take hold of and seize upon the superabundance of His unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and the clearance of all of our guilt. And if we do, we'll reign in life. And that word reign is basilio in the Greek. And it means to exercise kingly power and authority, to exercise the highest influence. So when you receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, you I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but you don't ever feel like you're under your circumstances again. You don't, you're not, certainly not under the authority of sin and death. You're under grace. And that means that you're a king. You're a priest in a heavenly kingdom. And this world becomes under your feet. So we're going to continue into Romans 5 to two verses that we had last week when we talked about federal headship and which Adam you're in. Are you in first Adam's sin or are you in last Adam's righteousness? Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, speaking of Adam, judgment came to all men resulting in what? Condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act... The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. What does that mean? Righteousness. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, many became sinners. Even so, through one man's obedience, many will become righteous. So moving, and who is that? That is Jesus Christ, right? Moving into verse 20. Moreover, 
the law entered that the offense might abound. What does that mean? I'm going to read it in a few other versions to get some clarity. New American Standard. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. New Living. The law came so all people could see how sinful they are. The Passion. The law came to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. So the law came in. The law entered. It was added, and that Greek word is perisokamai. I just like saying it. Perisokamai. It means to come in by stealth, to creep in, to come in alongside. It's only used two places in the New Testament. We'll get to the other one in Galatians. But it, it came in besides. What, beside what? We'll hear in a later uh, session that the law came in along beside the unconditional covenant of grace that God made within Himself on behalf of Abraham and all his descendants. And it's the forerunner to the unconditional new covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. So the law came in beside grace. Grace was already there. Grace was never annulled. Grace has always been God's heart for man. Grace is still here. It remains and it's available to anybody who was willing to wave the white flag and say, I cannot do it. I need Jesus. So, but those who want to be under the law, no one here, I'm sure, but I'm going to ask the question that Paul asked the Galatians in Galatians 4.21. He said, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? The law has a voice. It has something to say. And in Romans 3, Paul told us what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. So the law is going to stop you from going to God with all your accomplishments, all your good intentions. And your mouth is going to be stopped by that perfect standard. And you are going to be called unworthy. You may not even approach. You are unworthy. Therefore, by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. No one can do enough to be righteous. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law was to bring out sin and make every single person guilty. There is nothing wrong with the law. It's simply a mirror that tells you what's wrong with you. It's not the mirror's fault. It's only stating the facts. And the law did not make you a sinner. The law did not bring about the condition of death. The law simply diagnosed the condition, but it cannot do anything to cure it. The law was given to condemn you. It was given to bring awareness of your faults and of the wrath of God. It was given to make you constantly feel unworthy. And as Romans 2:14, I mean Colossians 2:14 tells us, it is hostile to us. It's against us. It's, it's not there to help you. It's against you. It was not given to encourage you or to strengthen you. It was not given to give you life or to save you or to make you righteous or to make you holy. And it certainly wasn't given to you to help you to stop sinning. The law, it is a bar set so high that the only purpose it could, it could ever serve is to tell you you can't achieve it. And it was never given to be reached in the first place. It was given to 
show you that you couldn't, so you would turn to Jesus and just give up. I'm for the law, for the purpose that God gave the law. The law is holy, just, and good, but it cannot make you holy, just, and good. It can only show you that you aren't. On the other hand, the gospel of grace which we preach will reveal a righteous condition that you already have in Jesus Christ and a righteousness you can receive today if not. Now, before I go any further, there might be someone out there listening that thinks, what about those people who don't read the Bible? What about those people who have never heard of the Old Covenant Law? What does it have to do with them? Why is this discussion even relevant? Well, all religions are inherently condemning. And not just the religions, the organized ones that claim a God and have rules and regulations and punishments. I'm including in this atheistic humanism because it has its list of do's and don'ts and its written and its unwritten rules and its punishments. But none of them offer forgiveness and redemption and a Savior. It's religion. Religion is like a carrot on a stick. Just do one more thing for God and He'll be pleased with you. Or just do one more thing for the greater good and you'll be accepted, right? Do good, get the carrot. Do bad, get the stick. It's like, and you're on a treadmill and it's just dangling out there. And no matter how fast you run, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to reach it because it's designed for failure. It's designed to mercilessly tell you, you will never reach it. Now, I know a lot of people have left legalistic Christianity, and I understand why. But some have ascribed to an equally condemning, brutal, cultural legalism that I believe that we're living in today where there is absolutely no redemption. So I want us to be able to think in in maybe some more broader terms when I say law and when I say sin. The Greek word for law is nomos, And in a broader sense, it means any system of religious thinking with forces or influences that impel from the outside one to comply. And then sin is, the noun sin is hamartia, which means missing the mark, never reaching the carrot. Religion, it works from the outside through pressure and shame. But grace works from the inside through love. And only the gospel of grace offers your ticket off of the treadmill because it's the only way to receive forgiveness and redemption through a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. Verse 20 again. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but here's the good news, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might rule through His righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You see the word abounded twice there, but did you know it's two different Greek words? The first one where sin abounded is pleonazo, which means it existed in abundance. But the, where grace abounded much more is huperparasio. 
And it means abounded beyond measure to overflowing. And I love the Kenneth Wiest expanded translation of Romans 5.20 where sin existed in abundance. Grace was in superabundance with more added on top of that. God's grace has completely overcome our sin. Now, the next verse is a question, and obviously this is a question that was brought up to Paul. It's brought up to everyone who strongly preaches grace. Moving into chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul never said, let's sin that grace may abound. What he said is where sin abounded, grace abounded much more because he had more confidence in God's grace than he did in the flesh of man. But some people have more confidence in the power of sin in the flesh than they do in the grace of God. But God's grace is greater than all our sin. And for people who are worried that we're saying, go sin, grace does not, not the kind I teach, grace does not give a license to sin. And I I just want to remind you, you have free will to do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. So grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the answer to sin. Grace is not freedom to sin, the verb. It's freedom from sin, the noun, the nature, which we're going to talk about. So Paul's answer to the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, was certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He said it's an impossibility. He didn't say we shouldn't live in sin. He said, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You can't live in sin when you're a new creation in Christ. You are in Christ. You have died to sin, so you're no longer in sin. Isn't that powerful? Next verse. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into His death, immersed in His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of Zoe, God, life. So we were co-crucified with Him. You remember Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That means He died for me. And we're also co-raised. And we had that last week in Ephesians 2. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And He raised us up together and He made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So at the cross, Jesus identified with us. He became our identity so that we could be identified with His. He stepped into our very worst so that we could receive His very best. There's no depths of darkness and depravity that He didn't absorb on our behalf. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Because His resurrection is our resurrection. And you should notice that in these first few verses of Romans 6 is a bunch of past tense verbs, meaning it's already happened. We have been buried with Christ. We were co-crucified. Co-buried, co-raised, co-ascended, co-seated. 
And now, as Romans 8.17 says, we are co-heirs with Christ and heirs of God. We're there now. We have it now. You have it already. Stop trying to get it, right? Next verse. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus. I always say, ding dong, the witch is dead. That the body of sin might be done away with. What does that mean? That your flesh would be separated from your identity in Christ. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. All right, here's the die to sin part. Have you ever tried to die to sin? Have you ever determined, I'm going to die to that sin, die to that anger, die to that fear, die to that lust? But the more you try to die to it, the more alive you seem to be to it. And why is that? Because you're trying to do something that's already been done. Like if I'm trying to sit on this stool when I'm already sitting on this stool. It will drive you crazy. Okay? So, two grammatical points that I want to make in this verse. Verse 7. The verb died. This verb is, died is in the aorist verb tense. A one point in time action never to be repeated. When you died, you died for good. Stop trying to die and start believing your your old man already has. And then the other is sin. That word sin is in the book of Romans 48 times. 40 of those times it is a noun, harmartia. Eight of those times it is the verb harmartana. And in Romans 6, sin is a verb only once. Only once. And it's not in verse 7. It's not until verse 15, which we'll get to in just a minute. So, He who has died has been freed from sin, the nouns. What is that speaking of? The nature, the imputation, therefore the penalty and the condemnation of sin. So people mistakenly think this verse is saying you are freed from sinning. And they're frustrated. They're feeling like they're a failure because they've been trying to die to sinning and it's not working. I'll tell you what, the Bible never said you would never commit another sin. What it says is you are freed from sin, the noun. Now, I know some people might say, well, didn't Paul say, I die daily? Didn't he say that? Well, he did, but it wasn't in the context of sinning. And I think it's worth telling you the context in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read it in the message. And why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day I live. So there's your I die daily in other versions. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah, Jesus? So he said that I die daily in the context of persecution, not sinning. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Very important statement. And the life that he lives, he lives to God forevermore. But why is it important that we know that Jesus died to sin once for all? The next verse tells us, verse 11, Likewise, you also. So in whatever means that Jesus died to sin is the manner in which we died to sin. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. Whatever manner in which he died to sin is the manner in which we died to sin. Is Jesus dying to sin little by little by little? No. Once for all, that's how we died to sin too. But once again, are we free from sinful behaviors and desires? No, none of us is. But we can say we're free from sin, the noun. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin does not identify us. Sin is not our nature. And sin is not our true want-tos on the inside. Isn't that good news? And where it says reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, that word reckon is not the reckon that we say, I reckon so, maybe so. No, it is the Greek word logizimai, and it is an accounting term that means to calculate, to count it as a fact that you are dead indeed to sin. If I reckon that I have a million dollars in the bank, I have a million dollars in the bank. It's a reckoning, right? So reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. So that brings us to a question. How did Jesus die to sin once and for all? If we understand what it means to be dead to, the, to sin the noun, we will understand the power that we have over sinning the verb. So number one, did Jesus die to sinning? Did he die to sinful behaviors and actions and thoughts and all of those things? Or did he die to the imputation, to the condemnation, to the penalty of sin? Now, I'm going to take pains to go ahead and ask the first question. Did Jesus die to sinful behavior? Did he ever come under the power of sin? Um, Obviously, the answer is no. Okay, because he didn't have any sin. And he said, the ruler is coming, but he has nothing in me. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, Yet, without sin, the noun, harmartia. And a lot of people read that verse as if it's a verb that he was tempted yet without sinning as if he wanted to sin, but he didn't. And he had that pressure to sin. He was never tempted to sin. He was tempted yet without sin, the noun, the nature. And that word tempted... The Greek word there means to test, to try whether a thing can be done, to put it to proof, like you would test gold for impurities. Jesus was tested and tried and proved to be without a nature of sin, as in the desert temptation, as in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was not of the fallen race of Adam. He has the divine nature of his father. He was born as a human the same way we are. But instead of being conceived by the seed of a mortal man with sinful flesh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. His blood came from his Father, from heaven, and is holy, royal, sinless, and divine. And that is why it is the only blood that can wash our sins water than snow and save us. He is the spotless, perfect, sacrificial Lamb of God for us. He had no sin, 1 John 3, 5. He committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Back to the question, how did Jesus die to sin once for all? Did He die to sinning the verb? No, obviously not. Did He die to the noun, the imputation, the condemnation, the penalty of sin? Yes, 
That's the way Jesus died to sin. That's the way we died to sin once for all. And only when we realize that we will never come under the penalty, the condemnation of sin, the wrath of God, will sin lose its power in our lives. Therefore, the next verse, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Verse 11, where it says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, to the nature, to the imputation, to the condemnation and penalty of sin. It's like when Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. And then verse 12 is like when he said, Now go and sin no more. Got to have verse 11 first. Verse 13, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. What are members? Your body, your flesh. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. That's who you really are. And your flesh, your members, as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law. You are under grace. And you could say it the other way. Sin did have dominion over everybody who was under the law. The law is like quicksand. The harder you try, the deeper you fall. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law. The strength, the dunamis, the dynamite power of sin is the law. Same word used in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the dunamis power of God to salvation. I thought about this as I was looking at my notes. Have you ever seen those Chinese finger traps? They're party favors that you know kids stick their finger in them and, and they pull, try to pull it apart. And the harder you try to pull it apart, the tighter it gets and the harder it is. I thought, that's just like the law. You look at it and you go, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to follow the rule, the boundary, I'm going to be that person that I'm supposed to be. But the harder you try, the more trapped you are. And the only way to release that trap is to let go and let God. Verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? There's your verb, sinning, okay? And it was used by those who would question whether or not Paul was condoning sinful behavior. Again, he says, certainly not. Now, before I read verse 16, we need to remember context. Remember what Paul said about first Adam and last Adam. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether uh, whether of sin to death, leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness? All right. Now, is Paul saying that if I sin, it's going to lead to my death? But if I'm obedient, it's going to lead to my righteousness? No, he couldn't possibly be saying that because it would negate everything that he said in the first five chapters of Romans. We are only righteous because of Jesus' obedience. And that word obey, hapakuo, it means to listen to, to hearken unto, to give your attention to. So Romans 6 verse 16 is literally you are slaves to whomever you are listening to, to whoever you're giving your attention to. Whose voice are you listening to? 
Are you listening to Adam, whose disobedience led to you being a sinner? Or do you think you're a sinner? Or are you listening to Christ's voice, whose obedience made you righteous? But God be thanked that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you were a sinner, yet you obeyed, you hearkened unto, you listened to, you gave attention to. What does that mean? You believed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Doctrine, didache, teaching. Did you know that you were delivered to a teaching? What is that teaching? It's the message preached. It's the gospel. It's the truth that because of Jesus Christ, you are now a child of God. You do not need to identify yourself as a sinner. This is the good news that sets us free. Can you see how important good teaching is and good doctrine? And, and I want to just say here, new covenant obedience is called in several places the obedience of faith. Not obedience of works. Obedience of faith. And there's a few places I found. Romans 16.26, obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, obedience of faith. Acts 6.7, obedience of faith. You can look it up. Find more. And every time we say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you are being obedient to the faith. You have been delivered to this doctrine. And whatever you believe is what you are going to live out. Having been set free from sin, the noun, you became slaves of righteousness, the noun. Right? Before we were saved, no matter what good we did, we were still sinners. No righteous act could change our status. All our works were dead. They could not bring life. But now, even when we fail, Jesus still looks at us and says, you're all fair, my love. Be who you are, even when you fail. You're still righteous. He has taken you from a prison called a sin nature to a prison called His righteous nature. Now we can live that out. We can be who we are. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that what Jesus has done is far greater than what Adam did. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. Amen.